1: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: Any cursory view of the evening news or look at what's trending on Twitter or, for that matter, um, gaining likes on Facebook tells you a lot about what's going on in our culture today. And, And so, too, I think, can the crime rate, divorce, marriage statistics, even church attendance, for that matter. It all points to a core shift in our society its values, and as a result, where we stand as individuals, as much as a nation, on many of today's so-called hot-button issues. You know the issues, abortion, gay marriage, the environment, politics in the church, on and on the list goes. Perhaps today, unlike never before, one thing we can agree on, and that is there's very little agreement on many of these issues, either inside or, for that matter, outside of the church. Well, what kind of a position should we stand? How should the church articulate where we stand? And sadly, today, oftentimes, the debate is not how to articulate where we stand, but whether or not we need to take a stand at all. Joining me, a man that needs no real introduction. He's pastored a church or two, written a book or two, even been on the radio once or twice. He's Chip Ingram, Senior Pastor of Venture Christian Church and uh, speaker on Living on the Edge. The new book, Culture Shock, a biblical response to today's most divisive issues. And Chip, always great to have you on the show.
1: Craig, good to uh, talk to you personally and and great to be uh, on KFAX.
0: Boy, isn't it scary what we see going on today? And, And, you know, that, that old song, uh, anything goes, uh, you know, what's uh, black today is white today, what's good today is bad today, and uh, anything goes, and that certainly seems to be the trend. Sadly, though, that mentality has has uh, crept from the impact of the culture into impacting the church, and now, as I say, we, we don't debate how we should go about articulating the stand that we have on certain key issues, but rather we fight each other as to whether or not we even need to take a stand.
1: Yeah, that's the thesis of this book. This book isn't about culture wars. It's not about blaming, you know, Hollywood or the educational system or the government. And this book is really addressed to us inside the church who say we love Christ, we uh, unashamedly believe the Bible's God's word that you know, we believe that uh, the second person of the Godhead uh, left heaven, was born of a virgin, uh, lived a perfect life, paid for our sins on the cross, died, rose again the third day ascended to the right hand of the Father, and gave us this amazing mission to declare to all the world that our sins have been forgiven by what He did at the cross, and it's the gospel, it's the good news. And that inside of that, then, a new life always begets a a new life change. And so, you know, that's my concern, is that Christians don't live like Christians, and part of it is ignorance, and part of it is... You know, as I talk about in the book, uh, so much of those hot topics are really symptoms. And underneath, whether it's abortion or human sexuality or cohabitation, adultery, fornication, sexual immorality uh, was rampant in the first century. And it was a strong challenge as believers came out of that lifestyle. And the same uh, with regard to their their challenges politically. I mean, Rome was... The powers Caesar wasn't just the emperor; he was God, and to not worship him was to be an atheist. And and so, you know, I think we're just returning to a day where uh, Christianity is going to be a lot more like the first century. So, how do we winsomely, lovingly uh, declare the truth by what we say and by what we do? And I think we need to bring a lot more light than heat. And this talks about how do we do that inside the church first before we export it.
0: And of course, one of the big challenges here, Chip, is the fact that it, it, at the core is oftentimes not just a matter of how do we go about declaring the truth, but how do we go about arriving at what the truth is. Now, certainly, from a um, I'll, I'll say a conservative um, um, viewpoint, from a Christian conservative viewpoint, we understand that that God's word is the ultimate and final arbiter of truth. But it's sad today because you know when I. I grew up um, 150 years ago, uh, we knew that truth existed, we knew that there was an absolute truth, absolutely, and today we've gotten into this paradigm shift where now the debate is not what truth is, but that there is not just the truth, but a truth, there's your truth and my truth, and it's, it's all wrapped up in this so-called uh, moral relativism, of today.
1: Well, one of the things I do in the book, I had uh, the privilege in my journey of um I, I draw a, a little picture. I just came back from a book tour I did about. I literally got to take the pulse of evangelical Christianity from the north, Michigan, as far south as Fort Lauderdale, the middle, Dallas, Fort Worth, Atlanta, and West Coast. And, um, you know, I wanted to get everything down to one picture. So I had this slide made of an a iceberg, if people can imagine an iceberg, and above it, the iceberg of the symptoms. And the big symptom is sexual immorality, whether that's abortion or cohabitation or... Um, homosexuality, and then politics is uh, certainly a live issue, and and then uh, the whole environmental issues. And what I did is that's above, that's ten percent, and those are the symptoms. And right underneath that, under the waterline, it really what you talked about. The real issue is, um, is is what's true, and is it relative or is it absolute? And uh, you know, I wrote my thesis at West Virginia University on the philosophical basis of teaching ethics. In other words, is there a right, is there a wrong? And uh, I do a little work there to help people see that in the last 50 years, plus or minus, think of this, in the last 50 years, the amazing rapid change in our culture, uh, we have literally turned upside down, I'm talking about inside the church, 4,000 years of biblical morality. So, I mean, in, in the in the decade of the 50s, uh, sexual immorality, even in the culture, was about uh, two to four percent girls and boys by their senior year of high school. It's eighty and ninety percent today. Thirty percent of evangelical teens believe same-sex relationships are okay. These are in Bible teaching churches, like like where I'm at. And about thirty-four or thirty-five percent of uh, eighteen to twenty-nine year olds in our churches. I'm not talking about you know out there. Um, are either cohabitating or having casual sex and basically it's you know i don't feel like that command about sexual purity really applies to me so the issue is really those are the symptoms it's what's true and that whole journey of existentialism that brought us to our current sort of pluralism underneath that at the bottom of the iceberg is exactly what you hit on it's scripture is it the final authority or is it just culturally interpreted?
0: I have to wonder, you know, some would, would would then ponder, well, what's transpired here that down through the years, and particularly in this sort of fast track over the last um, couple of generations, what's happened to change our thinking? Then, of course, maybe the bigger, broader argument is, have we simply changed our thinking or ceased to think entirely?
1: Well, I think what happens is our youth and um you know remember remember when existentialism in the sixties a lot of people listening were going, "Oh, yeah, if it feels good, do it, remember that, oh yeah, uh, I have my truth, you have yours, i'm okay, you're okay." Well, well, when that began to, you know, that, that turned into the sexual revolution of the 70s, the greed generation of the 80s, the me generation of the 90s, and then it got full-blown where after 30 to 40 years in academia, it went full-blown to where pluralism has gone from every opinion is okay to anyone who dares say this is right and this is wrong is intolerant. And I think we need to understand that um, pounding the table with people who understand and look at truth completely differently is a, is a no win proposition. We're going to have to demonstrate the gospel in fresh ways. We're going to have to love people. One of the big movements in the bay right now that I'm really excited about is churches coming together in radical ways like in in my kind of 20 plus years of being around here, I've never seen the business community, churches all come together around serving, caring, loving And I I think that sort of builds the platform. And then we have to declare the truth and and realize it's probably going to be unpopular.
0: And we do have to do some um, platform rebuilding, don't we? Because as you point out in the book, and I quote you here, sexual immorality has become so acceptable, even in the church, that we've lost our moral distinctive and as a result, our platform to share the good news.
1: Well, I mean, it's just, it's the reality of, you don't live any differently than me, and and maybe why God put this so deep in my heart was that's why I rejected Christianity. You know, I mm. grew up in the church, I, I watched people live just absolutely uh, lives of duplicity, and it was forget it. I don't believe any of it. But what I what what gives me hope is I met uh, you know my heart was very you know, into sports and, you know, I went to school on a basketball scholarship, I got around some athletes who didn't push me. They lived the life. They gave me a New Testament and they said, read this, ask God if he's really real, read it with an open mind. And they, their lives were the kind that I thought, hey, I want to be like them. I want to have relationships like them. They were authentic. They were transparent. When they blew it, they owned it. And they were good. I mean, they were the kind of people that they had excellence and. I think that's the kind of platform the early church had. I think that anytime you see God moving, that's the kind of platform in business and sports and education. And I think that's what has to happen, Christians living like Christians in the church. And so this book, what, what, I, what I realize is most people when these topics come up are either silent, they don't say anything either because they don't know what to say or they realize they're going to be criticized or they come out so strong and so angry that You know, we shake our head and we realize, you know, we might agree with some of the content, but the way they're saying it, again, just... um Removes any platform and basis because it's
0: so unloving. Well, and when you take the charity out of this, then all of a sudden you 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 set up a combative situation. Well, certainly people are immediately going to be not just on the defensive; they'll in fact move into an offensive position. And now you find yourself sort of uh, shrinking back and saying, "Well, okay, don't want to dare go there because I know what's going to happen." And and therein lies then the loss that we lose of not just the platform but the influence that we as the church should have, uh, and, and not just to say let's see what we can do to sprinkle some truth into culture but in fact to lead the culture it is the topic of a new book called culture shock a biblical response to today's most divisive issues we're going to take a brief time out come back to more of our conversation with pastor chip ingram as this edition of lifeline continues
1: and now back to lifeline with craig roberts
0: Back to our conversation. Pastor Chip Ingram is with us on this edition of Lifeline. We're talking about his new book, Culture Shock. And Chip, just before the break, we were talking about this this slow slide into moral relativism, um, this abandonment of the sense of absolute truth. And then, of course, we also get into this challenge that the church often faces, as you were alluding to, that we, we either take one or the other, meaning that we either promote the truth without love, um, as if it's an either-or, or share love without the truth. And this is not really a case of either-or, is it? It's really both-and.
1: Well, when it's not both-and, it doesn't work at all. And uh, I remember when I was teaching on probably the most controversial subject of homosexuality, uh, the evening we were filming it, because what what I realized was there's a lot of people that are not going to read a book. There's a lot of parents that are not going to bring up these subjects. And so we put it on a small group a DVD and also just digitally. And so as I went around the country, I met people everywhere who just said, we use these for family devotions, our small group, our Sunday school class. We've never talked about homosexuality in church or human sexuality or cohabitation or politics. And, um, and so that was the passion behind it. But what I can say is, then Ida was teaching on homosexuality. I mean, you know, we're in the Bay Area and, you know, in Santa Cruz, of course, you know, I lived there 12 years and, you know, had lots of people both in and outside the church, in and out of the lifestyle. And, you know, we had a great ministry, too, and friendships and talked very openly about those things. And so I was walking. I kind of hang out for 10, 15 minutes just to see who's here, say hi to people. And I walked up to a guy, and he bumped me, and he said, Hey, man, this is uh, this going to be pretty interesting. And there were some notes, and it said, What do you say to a gay friend? I said, Well, why do you say that? He goes, Well, I've been in the lifestyle. My whole life. And my friend said I should come. So I'm here. So what do you say to a gay friend? I'm a, I'm the gay friend. And uh, and so anyway, I said, well, where are you from? And we got a conversation. He stood up. We talked for, you know, eight, nine, ten minutes. And I said, well, hey, I'm, would you do me a favor, a huge favor? And they said, I don't know. I mean, we kind of hit it off. I said, when I get done, you're going to listen like few people. And I want to be fair to your position. I'm going to talk about sort of the historic Christian position, and I'm going to talk about, you know, the gay position. And I really want to be fair. I mean, even body language, statistics, everything. When I get done, would you come up, because I'm going to do this again tomorrow a couple times, and honestly give me feedback? He looked at me kind of slouched and goes, yeah, I'll do that. So anyway, I get done, and you know, I'm wondering if he's going to come up, and so I, I get done with everything, and this guy comes up, comes up with his friend, and, and I literally pulled out my pen, and I took the back of my notes, and I said, fire away. I mean, he said, well, let me tell you something. He said, how you started it kind of blew me away. I said, well, how's that? And this gets to your point. He said, well, you started out, and you apologized to the gay and lesbian community, and I thought, man, are you kidding me? I can't believe you did that in church. And then you said, a lot of us have, don't know much about Christianity, but under this big banner of Christianity, there's these people, and they say they're Christians, and they hold up placards, and they scream and yell, and sometimes they're violent, and and, and you said they're all, quote, truth with no love, and that is completely different than the way Jesus was. And he said, man, I'm nodding thinking, yeah, I've seen some of those people. They scare me, actually. He said, but then you said, there's people, and they call themselves Christians, and we don't know what's really a Christian? And they say, it's okay to live together. It's okay to be married. In fact, some of us are, you know, ordained pastors and bishops and all the rest. And and then you said, it's all love and they want to be caring and accepting. But you said, how loving is it when you know that the average lifespan of a male homosexual in, in the San Francisco Bay Area is age 43? I mean, if I knew someone was doing something that caused them to live maybe 30 years less and didn't tell them how loving could that be and he looked at me and he goes I never thought about it that way so he said you know and he gave me some good feedback and you know it was very interesting when I got done and, you know as God is always teaching and prompting you and we got done and we just had a connection and I, I started to reach out my hand to shake his hand and thank him, and I realized you know the spirit of God kind of whispered this guy does not need a handshake You know, he needs a hug. And I said, man, can I give you a hug? And I did. And, you know, we built a connection there and with his friend. And it was one of those moments I thought, oh, God, your word's powerful. When you really love people, even if you disagree. And, you know, then he began to tell me all of his journey and what he'd been through. And uh, and what you realize is when you have compassion and you care about people. And now he didn't agree with a lot of what I said. Um, eventually, that ends up being a really wonderful story from, you know, God's kingdom perspective. But what I saw was, you know, Craig, if we can know what we're talking about, if we cannot be threatened, we cannot be defensive, but we have to be bold and courageous. And really just the, the metaphor for me is light. Bring light. But people have to sense that you really care about them. And when that happens, I just... I just think a lot of this stuff melts away.
0: So so you mean that basically sharing this truth in love a lot like, um, who else? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> You know, it's amazing how we tend to go for, and we've all had these these conversations or heard these stories. You sit down with a non-Christian individual, a friend, an acquaintance, and, and say, Well, now, tell me your perspective on what the church is against. And they go through the whole laundry list. The church is against uh, you know, sex outside of marriage and uh, divorce, and the church is against homosexuality and abortion, and on and on the list goes. And they say, Okay, now, tell me what the church is for. And there's dead silence. And it's that lack of balance. It's that 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 sometimes the ability to truth tell, but to fail to do so when love, or to so thoroughly embrace the love side. ...of the story, that we fail to tell the truth, and yet you look at Jesus, who was ultimately bold in all that he proclaimed when he was active in his ministry on earth, and yet everything that he said was always demonstrated with heartfelt love, demonstrative compassion toward the people that he was interacting with. Look at the woman at the well. Yeah, and I
1: I love just we sometimes we forget I think we get intimidated we forget just how powerful you know God's word is powerful it's not us you know His word is sharper than a two-edged sword piercing the division of soul and spirit and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of men's hearts I mean the gospel it's the power of God's salvation and I just finished up the book tour at Calvary Chapel at uh, Fort Lauderdale, and it's an amazing church, about 20,000 on the weekend, and 10 campuses, and a very warm, warm group, and and um, you know, I, I basically taught through these things, and of course, they have very much like San Francisco, a huge uh, gay and lesbian population, and you know, we just walk through, these are the symptoms, God's not down or angry at people. Here's the issue of truth and why. And if you go back to Genesis, you know, I kinda had this moment that I'd never seen it this way until I was speaking there and I thought, you know, when before there's any sin, whether it's homosexual sin, heterosexual sin, lying, politics, manipulation, polluting the earth, before there's any sin, the first thing, the most precious thing in the world is life. And after God brings life, the next the first thing you institute is marriage. A man and a woman spiritually, emotionally, and physically, and then they're to be fruitful so they have family. And then when families begin to, to multiply, you have life in community. And these communities, if you get enough of them, it's a city. The Greek word for, for a city is polis, where we get our word politics. And then, then lots of cities fill up this place called the earth that's an environment. And I began to see, Craig, like never before, the thread between all of these is about lies. Abortion brings death before it gets started. Sexual immorality—it doesn't matter whether it's homosexual or heterosexual, whether it's cohabitation. I mean, I, and, and there I said, to, "I said, how many of you here? Okay, let's just talk about this. You're a wife, and you found out your husband has a pornography addiction. What did it do to your relationship? You, you're, you're a you're a you're a guy, and found out your wife had an affair. What did it do to your relationship? Uh, you you know were abused as a kid, and you got involved in a homosexual relationship Whatever, but. It, it, you just watch it. Life, the institution of marriage, and then when you look at family, and you know now we look at kids, pain, death. Every one of these things really are a lie that has caused destruction and separation and pain, and uh, Jesus is the life giver, and his word gives life, and people just need to see ordinary people like you and me love people that they don't think we would love, and we've got to demonstrate it. And um, this book is about getting equipped to do that. Ordinary people. I'm, my prayer is for a grassroots movement of people who read the book, people who share the book, people who do the small group, and then people who are bold in the business place and ask more questions than comments are being defensive. You know, it's just people make these blatant statements, you know, blah, 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 blah. And just be able to say, wow, that is an interesting perspective. I've heard that a lot. And instead of, why do you believe that? Where, where does that go? If we would start asking the questions sort of with the gentleness, what I found is most people will tell you all their stuff and they say, well, well, what do you believe and why? And if, if you can articulate clearly, kindly, lovingly, then a dialogue
0: occurs. Doesn't a lot of this, though, Chip, also go back to the importance of the church embracing the truth? And I, and I pose that question because quite often, not only do we fail to to engage another individual, and I was struck by the fact as you shared that story with the gentleman that you spoke to um, during uh, one of your recent trips, that there was a connection between the two of you. And and sometimes we fail to make that connection, and I think in part because not only do we fail to try to understand the other person, where they're coming from, and why they believe what they believe. But there's also a sense of intimidation, I think, by many of us in the church, because we know what we believe. We just don't know why we believe it. It's something we've always heard. It's been preached from the pulpit. We've never taken time to go deep enough within God's word to understand why that is true from God's perspective.
1: Well, you're right. And what I I found out on these particular issues I did, um, you know, God gives me these little promptings. And so I said, "Okay, if you open the doors, I'll do it. And so all last year I, I spoke at a bunch of colleges. I mean, Bellwether, Great Evangelical Institutions and then did a couple things with Campus Crusade and so I was with 20 somethings. I mean, I mean a lot. And and then I, when I got there, I would I would say, how many of you in church youth group, college anything have ever heard a message on the environment? No hands go up. How many have ever heard it on church and politics or what your role is and what the church no none. How many people have ever heard a message or had a discussion on homosexuality? Zero. So, you know, on, on, on the one hand, how about, how about abortion? You know, okay, four hands go up. Um, how about human sexuality? Yeah, we heard weight. <laughs> you, <know, but, laughs> you, you, know, you know, and so you just want to say, why are we shocked when we haven't taught in our homes or taught in the church what god has to say and from god's perspective that it's good that it's kind that he's loving that it's free your best uh, i you could hurt a pin drop when i when i spoke uh, at another place and i uh, was in atlanta at a church and it was a, a lot of young people and and i just I was trying to kind of give fair everyone wants to jump on the homosexual bandwagon i said I, i'm actually more concerned about cohabitation in the church you know and when you and, and I said, now, here's the deal. If you understand, now we have research and science. God cares about us. His, his word and his rules are for our good. Statistically, if you cohabitate, and about 60% of people cohabitate, eventually get married. But if you cohabitate, whether you get married or not, 10 years later, here's, here's the studies. One out of 10 couples are still together 10 years later. Wow. And, and, and so I'm saying, so I'm just saying to a group of people, God's not a prude. It's not like he makes up these rules and tries to mess with you or doesn't want you to have sex or all the rest. It's like, here's the game plan. Engineers design things how. So they work really, really well. God has designed life, relationships, sex, Money in a way that it works great.
0: So we shift him out of that role of being the big cosmic killjoy that a lot of people think he is and realize that there's actually purpose behind his plan for us.
1: Yeah, I love the passage in Psalm 84. It was my dating verse when I thought, Oh, God, you know, how can I live here? It says, No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And I just sort of hung on to that and said, Well tell you what everybody else on the basketball team with four girls to every guy is having an awful lot of fun that I keep hearing about and it's very hard to be sexually pure and uh, I look back now after 35 years of marriage and four kids and I didn't do it perfectly for sure but you know it's again God's ways
0: are good. Uh, the Lord the Lord uh, rewarded you with a wonderful woman in Teresa and, uh, and obviously once again demonstrative of the fact that if we are faithful to his words and keep his commandments, he will be faithful and will reward us. Chip Ingram, our guest today on this edition of Lifeline, a look at Culture Shock. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, a look at the difference between warring fractions and warring worldviews as Lifeline continues. Back to our conversation with Chip Ingram. He, of course, author of Culture Shock, a biblical response to today's most divisive issues. The Notebook, by the way, published by Baker Books. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area through Amazon.com. And you can also get more information on Chip and the book on his ministry website at livingontheedge.org. That's livingontheedge.org. You call the book Culture Shock. Yet We know that we're in the middle of culture wars. There's a sense of war. Worldviews, to be sure. Sadly, though, Chip, as you've been pointing out, we sometimes reduce this down to simply warring people. We see each other as the enemy, as opposed to really understanding who the enemy is and what he's done here in terms of leading us, including the church, quite frankly, down this slippery slope, away from absolute truth, into sort of this dissolving of our moral compass into situational ethics and, and relative truth. The big question is, how do we get back to understanding that there are absolute truths?
1: Well, one, I think we got to start with our, with our kids and uh, early on. And I think part of it, we need to also understand how we got here. Because this is, I mean, people think this is how the world has always been. This is the way it is. And I think um, for some who enjoy sort of the, the intellectual, philosophical journey, which is, you know, I may not be an intellectual, but I love to read and think, and when I see the journey, it's very helpful for me, then I realize, oh, wow, this is how we got. So I, I listen, I process all the time around our supper table, and, you know, my kids were just, they'd, they'd laugh and sometimes, come on, Dad. And, you know, I'd pause, okay, do you understand what's happening in this commercial? What's the presuppositions? What are they telling us? What are the assumptions? Because I wanted them to learn to think And so I think part of that is it's got to start with us as parents. I think the other thing, um, Craig, is we have got to return to just uh, a a commitment and a a zeal and a desire for God's word. You know, when Jesus was praying about his church, you know, whether people believe in absolute truth or not, um, Jesus said this, you'll know the truth. If you abide and apply it, and the truth will set you free. And on the very last night, he prayed, Oh, Father, set them apart, make them holy. How? By your word. Your word is truth. And so I think until we get back in the scriptures and not just little diddly devotionals or hearing from a pastor on the weekend. Uh David said, If your word had not been my delight, it would have perished in my affliction. You know, how can a young man keep his way pure? You guarded according to your word. And so I think that we've got there's gotta be a resurgence of commitment to the scripture. I don't think you can take in the Scripture and let the Spirit of God get it down deep in your soul and still have situational ethics or moral relativism.
0: Well, again, I think that that fervent application of diving into God's word, studying to show oneself approved of God. I, I, I'm reminded, Chip, and every once in a while that, that I'd love to pull this story out. You probably heard it, too. Um, when he asked the question, well, now, when someone gets a job working for a bank, my goodness, some bank tellers uh, deal with tens of thousands of dollars across that teller's window every day. And there's so many reports about uh, falsified bills going around and so forth. So how do they learn how to memorize what all those phony bills look like? And the simple, true answer is, they don't teach them what all the false bills look like, because there's dozens of them out there. But what they do is they teach them to study what the real bill looks like. And when they study that bill, commit it to heart and to memory, the minute false bill comes across their desk, they'll know it. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to truth. If we study to show ourselves approved, and we immerse ourselves in God's Word, and do so dutifully and fervently when false teaching comes along or, or a competing truth, another something that would present itself as, as another truth comes along we will know so much about the truth of God's word hidden in our heart that we'll instantly be able to recognize it and reject it
1: Well, I really agree with you, and I have to say, you know, I ended up not really intentionally. I always kind of went back and got more education just to get to do the next thing, and my my parents were educators, but I never was really all that impressed with education. And I I mean, it's been very helpful, and I'm glad I had to learn a bunch of languages. But it was hard, and I didn't really like it a lot, except I liked to learn. But here's what I could tell you. Of all the people that have taught me the most that have the greatest impact, It was a bricklayer in West Virginia with a high school education, and what he did is he helped me develop the habit of making the very first appointment every day to get a great cup of coffee, open your Bible, read systematically, slowly, uh, meditatively, talk with your Heavenly Father, and literally ask Him, you know what's coming today, and beginning to master and read through the scriptures on a regular basis. And I will tell you, I think that practice has been more helpful than all the Greek and Hebrew and degrees and anything ever. It has been holding on to God's word, memorizing key passages, hearing God speak to me on a daily basis. And, you know, after the services, you know, I I hang out and and just talk with people what's going on in their life, Greg. And, you know, a lot of... Of the problems that we get into, we're we're trying to fill a hole. We believe a lie, and I most always I try and do it as gently as possible. And they talk about you know I got this addiction, I got that addiction. This has happened. I lost my job, and you know this. And I just can I just ask you something? You know, very gently, tell me a little bit about the habitual habit of you being in God's Word. And and, you know, their eyes kind of look at their feet. uh, You know, I don't really read the Bible at all. And it's just like, okay, so you have a car, and you put no gas in it, and you just cannot figure out why it's not running at all or running well. And, you know, Jesus said that men won't live by bread, physical, alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And again, it's not a legalistic thing. It's not shoving it down people's throat. It's not, you know, telling the kids, sit down, shut up, and I'm going to read 10 chapters to you. <laughs> but it's it's from the heart, It's life. And um, that's my heart's passion. And uh, I, I would long to just to see those listening to us now to say, you know, what would it look like to block off 15 minutes first thing in the morning? And I, I will tell you what, I don't know what problem, what issue, what challenge. We all have relationship issues. We've got marriage issues, single issues, financial issues, emotional issues. But I will tell you, um, the greatest thing you can do is begin to think God's thoughts after him, and uh, a lot of those things amazingly can clear up.
0: A look at Culture Shock, a biblical response to today's most divisive issues. A new book, again, published by Baker and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon, and, of course, through the Living on the Edge website at livingontheedge.org. That's livingontheedge.org. Chip Ingram, Chip, as always, brother, a delight and a privilege to have you on the program. Look forward to visiting with you again real soon.
1: Well, thank you, and we are so deeply grateful. Actually, many people may not know that I think the second station we ever... Ever, we're ever on with thanks to KFAX and the journey with you guys. And God has really blessed us and we're very, very grateful. All right. Well, we Keep appreciate it.
0: We'll do. You do the same. And we appreciate the partnership in the ministry. There's Chip Ingram. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. How many believers today? Maybe maybe privately you might even admit this for yourself. You can tell people what you believe you just can't tell them why we're going to talk a bit about that today as we meet a very special guest certainly a very familiar voice to kfax listeners he's heard weekday mornings at seven thirty a.m here on kfax senior pastor at parkside church in cleveland at alistair great to have you on the program
2: Thank you, Craig. It's very kind of you, and uh, it's a a treat always to talk with you. My goodness, 30 years. Uh, (laughs) The Lord has done some amazing
0: things over the course of the last three decades. Could could you ever have imagined when you came from uh, Scotland with your your wife and young family all that time ago that that the
2: Lord would have taken you in this direction? No, I I honestly couldn't, and uh, it seems in some ways as though it was only yesterday time has gone by so quickly as you say and yet uh, these have been great and privileged years and I really wouldn't want to change very much about them at all it's been a peculiar joy to uh, first of all serve this congregation and have them be so long suffering as to put up with me for three decades and uh, <laughs> and then the radio program on top of that is a, is, a, is a wonderful opportunity that uh, we certainly are uh, humbled by and don't take for granted. Well, and we don't take it for granted either, Alistair,
0: because I think uh, many of us um, recognize the importance for a ministry such as yours that in in the 30 years has moved, I think, consistently and critically so. More and deeper into the arena of a Christian apologetics, of which, my goodness, if there was ever a day and time when we needed Christians to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within,
2: this is it. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I was listening to your introductory comments, and uh, I, I agree with you entirely. And uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the fault, if there if there is an inadequate preparation on the part of uh, uh, christian people uh, a lot of the fault has to lie with those of us who are pastors because our role is to prepare god's people for works of ministry and uh, part of the ministry is the ministry of proclamation and uh, so uh we don't want to chide ourselves too much but we take seriously the peculiar challenges that are represented uh In uh, the culture here in America, particularly, and uh, and, uh, expressly so just in the last few days.
0: Well, and certainly, you know, uh, I think all of us perhaps begrudgingly can agree that there have been um, areas lacking in the modern day American pulpit. But but that said, the people in the pews have to take a little bit of responsibility to this, too. And I think about uh, a wonderful focus that you bring. I was just going through the pages of um, the book that you've co-authored with Sinclair Ferguson name above all names. And I just, for the benefit of the audience, let me just quote um, a couple of opening lines here. Um, Alistair writes, Jesus Christ has been given the name above all names. The names assigned to him begin in Genesis, end in Revelation. Taken together, they express the incomparable character of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Reflecting on them better prepares us to respond to the exhortations of Scripture, to focus our gaze upon him, and to meditate on how great he is. Then Alistair continues, being able to think, long and lovingly about the Lord Jesus is a dying art. The disciplines required to reflect on him for a prolonged period of time and to be captivated by him have been relegated to a secondary place in contemporary Christian life. Action, rather than meditation, is the order of the day. Sadly, too often that action is not suffused with the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Boy, if anything could, could handily sum up some of what we see in the trends taking place in, in the church in specific and in our society at large, that that certainly summarizes it.
2: Well, yeah, I think it's <laughs> think it sounds so good. I'm pretty sure that must be Sinclair. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it's right on the mark because we, we don't ponder the word the way we used to. And to reflect on Jesus Christ, to sit and imagine spending hours just pondering about the amazing gift of god's grace that that god would be so passionate about his love for the creation that had nevertheless offended him so and yet still he was willing to send his only begotten son to die on our behalf such a greater love mankind has never known and and i think that observation in name above all names is right on the mark that we we've, we've lost the capacity or the desire or the heartbeat to want to ponder and study on that and i imagine if we would recap capture that ability how the church could turn the world upside down
2: yeah i mean i i think that you know if you take the average person coming to church they they're not asking the question where is jesus they're asking where am i mm. and uh, there's a sort of man-centered orientation to even the study of scripture and even the way in which uh, the bible is taught that sort of reinforces notions that are you know sort of immediately appealing but they don't have any long lasting value they're not going to stand uh, in, the, in the challenges of, of uh, time when a culture as, as ours turns increasingly secular and uh, the Christian church begins to uh, face the challenge of living as a minority uh, in, in the culture which has not been uh, part and parcel of the American psyche at, at least until this point in time mm. How much of this really pivots
0: on the church, its strength, its understanding of God's word, its ability to make disciples when we talk about the direction or the condition of, of culture and society at large?
2: Well, you know, church history makes it fairly clear, I think, Craig, that uh, that the collapse of the church has always been internal, you know, it it has always been able to handle the the challenges of persecution. The blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. And when the prevailing drift on the outside has been at its most intense, uh, then the people of God have rediscovered who they are, what God expects of them, and they've they've rallied to the challenge. Um, but but the real danger is the the danger of a sort of internal. Uh, erosion and uh, a collapse in confidence, a loss of confidence in the in the relevance and in the truth and in the power of the good news itself. And again, many many people who pay lip service to to Jesus uh, will be uh, really. Uh, struggling to to stand up to the, the the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus that there is only one mediator between God and man and that is Jesus that there is only one name by which men and women may be saved and that is in the name of Jesus and the the, the drift in culture in in our. Um, uh, sort of deconstructed use of language and our understanding of history is so dominant that uh, it is absolutely imperative that uh, those who profess the name of Christ uh, really dig in and understand just what it means for them to be in union with Christ and what a man or a a woman in Christ really is. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Pastor Alistair Begg with us on the program. He,
0: of course, is the host of Truth For Life, heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. We're going to take a brief time out. When we come back, more of our conversation, we dig down into uh, the, the baseline importance of what it means to truly be a disciple of Christ. As our conversation with Pastor Alistair Begg continues.